0: Inclusiveness in the outdoors is what the Unlikely Stories podcast is all about. It's what many outdoor communities and organizations like the Appalachian Mountain Club are all about. Today, we speak with Sophia Belski and Vasu Suchitra, founders of Inclusive Outdoors Project. They share with us their mission to include every community to this amazing thing we call the outdoors. Enjoy. The Appalachian Mountain Club invites adventurers, explorers, and outdoor leaders to share their astonishing stories. Stories that unite communities with inspiration, information, and entertainment. Elevating unheard and diverse stories because everyone is part of the outdoor community. This is the Unlikely Stories Podcast.
1: Building a more inclusive outdoors is a really hot topic right now. And one of the biggest barriers to the outdoors is access. Access for people with disabilities, access for BIPOC and queer communities, access to finances, and even just access to outdoor gear.
0: And one organization trying to make the outdoors more accessible to all communities is the Inclusive Outdoors Project. This organization hosts events that bridge the gap between affinity spaces and outdoor-based organizations.
1: Yeah, and they're trying to make sure every event they host, whether it's ice climbing or backcountry skiing, is centered around accessibility so that every community can
0: be uplifted. So let's go ahead and talk to the founders of Inclusive Outdoors Project. Welcome, Sophia Belsky and Vasu Sochitra to the Unlikely Stories podcast. Thank you for having
2: us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having us. Excited about the conversation.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, So when we first started this podcast, our whole mission was to uh, include others, to uh, inspire and unite a bunch of different communities. Because I'm a big believer that the outdoor community is is made up of a bunch of different communities. And this is exactly what you guys are doing. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about yourselves and about the Inclusive Outdoors project, how it it became uh, what it is now?
2: Yeah,
3: sure. Uh, Sophia, do you wanna go first?
2: Sure. Um, So my name is Sophia Bilski. My pronouns are she, they. And I am based in Bozeman, Montana, currently. I am a queer non-binary climber. And I focus a lot of my work in like queer spaces, queer advocacy. Um, I do work with like women's groups as well. And yeah, that's a little bit about me.
3: Cool, and then uh, my name is Vasu Sojitra. My pronouns are he, him. I'm also in Bozeman, which is the land of the Crow, Northern Cheyenne, Salish Kootenai, Shoshone Bannock, Blackfeet, and many other, um, tribes and nations and confederacies. Um, I'm a, a professional athlete, like the title sponsor being North Face and, um, a few others. And then I also, uh, co-founded Inclusive Outdoors Project with Sophia last pretty much, uh, November, I want to say, I can't remember yeah. anymore. So
1: yeah. <laughs> um, really quick, which, which sport are you a professional athlete in?
3: I am a athlete in skiing. And also I identify as a disabled person of color. So I have a right leg amputation and I'm from South Asia, India, at least my uh, parents are.
1: Wow, okay. Um, I just have, I have one more question then for you. How did you, how did you get into skiing?
3: Um, it was when I was younger, when I was 10 years old, um, me and my brother went with another mutual friend in Connecticut and kind of just fell in love. I saw another amputee skiing um that first day i went skiing which is kind of a coincident and kind of just fell in love with it and just kept going over and over again as much as i could uh parents were very much open to driving and paying for everything so yeah that was, <laughs> that was pretty exciting and supportive
1: yeah it helps um really quick so we in another episode talked about this concept in climbing called the sun train which i don't even climb so i feel kind of fraudulent talking about this, but um, it's the idea that like when you see somebody else who looks like you in some capacity doing something, it has a lot of power and weight and it opens up doors kind of for what's possible. So just as I was hearing you talk about how like you saw another person who also was an amputee um, skiing, it then sounds like showed you what's possible and um, I'm wondering with the inclusive outdoors project like what or how like do you believe in that Train concept and like what role does that concept have in the inclusive outdoors project so i don't know if you want to kind of talk about what your organization does and tie that into it and like the power of inclusion and how that helps you know people i think see what's possible because there is a lot of weight behind seeing someone who looks like you or identifies in the same capacity you do doing something it's a long a very long question <laughs> yeah I,
0: think <laughs> I thought i thought you were about to answer it yourself <laughs> I
1: know. let me tell you what you guys do <laughs> so now the floor is yours <laughs> yeah.
3: um i'll have sophia take this one <laughs> i can talk all day about this
1: okay so. yeah, yeah
2: i the Okay, so I'll give you a little bit of a background of inclusive outdoors project and because representation is one of the reasons why we founded this so um, Vasu and I one day uh, we, we were talking about how we wanted to create these affinity spaces for folks like us in the outdoors. And an affinity space is essentially a safe space for folks with similar lived experiences, similar backgrounds. And everyone in that group identifies with the same identity or similar identity. Um, and it's it's a positive environment for cultivating vulnerability, increasing your community, things like that. So this was in November of last year. And then Inclusive Outdoors Project was kind of founded on those principles of being like, well, we want to create a space for LGBTQ folks, for BIPOC folks and for adaptive people. So I guess we have to create an organization to really get the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. So we did. And then we hosted our first clinic in December. So it was like a really quick turnaround of we're born and then we uh, are hosting events at this point. But yeah, the, the purpose of Inclusive Outdoors Project is to get more people into the outdoors and recreating and knowing that they have a space in in the outdoor uh, world you know um increasing representation the more people you see who are like you you're gonna want to do the same thing like if you didn't know it was possible as a non-binary person to run an organization or to have a seat at the board table you know like seeing that representation inspires you to want to be out there completely yeah, yeah and,
3: and a lot of our focus is within those three spaces, but a lot of people identify within those three spaces, whether it's communities of color and uh, disabled folks and uh, the LGBTQ community. So, um, and our focus is mostly on mountain sports. So uh, more so um, ice climbing, rock climbing, mountaineering and backcountry skiing, just because both Sophia and I are focused as our recreation in those sports and we just wanna see more people like us in those spaces as well and just be able to give those opportunities and realize that those, those sports in general have such a massive um, uh, massive barrier to it, whether it's finance or uh, funding or um, mentorship or any kind of representation and leadership. So um, that's kind of the, been the focus for us is just trying to incorporate more mountain sports representation.
1: So how do you, um, when you have these clinics, and I love what you said Sophia about affinity spaces, like creating a quote safe space for individuals. Um, how do you help people get to those clinics? Like if, if there is a financial barrier or they don't have the gear, right? Cause climbing, especially if it's trad, which maybe <laughs> you're mainly doing sport, but it still requires gear, um, which can be really expensive. Same with backcountry skiing skiing or, or any of the sports you listed. So how do you make that more accessible financially to people to get to the clinic or to pay for the gear.
2: So we have a scholarship fund where individuals can donate to. We reach out to to other brands and organizations to see who wants to get involved in this kind of work, and a lot of folks are really hungry um, to to donate to something like this. So we've had a lot of a lot of success. Um, with like individual community members or reaching out to like larger companies who want to support um our
0: mission i like that i like it so did you you want to add something yeah i
3: mean as as sophia said it's a scholarship and all of our clinics are sliding scale um and just try to incorporate that you know focus on trying to reduce as many barriers as we can within these sports. So, um, yeah, that's just one of the ways we try to try to incorporate that.
0: So tell our listeners, if for for someone that wants to make the outdoors inclusive, what is it that that needs to be done? I know you have your organizations and you guys are doing your thing, but just the ordinary Joe, uh, what can they do to make the outdoors inclusive? Where do they start?
2: I feel like the first step is listening to the people um, when they're saying like, hey, this kind of language that you're using at the Crag is does not make me feel safe or welcomed here. Being able to receive that feedback and then make improvements based on that feedback, you know, like you can't really go into a community and try to influence it or or change it based on what you want done you have to listen to the community members and if they're telling you that something makes them unsafe or if there are ways that that you can make a a safer outdoor space then you really need to um like put their opinions at the forefront
1: Mm -hmm. i love what you're saying about just yeah using using language like that like Mm -hmm. using welcoming inclusive accessible language is a great place to start and pretty much everyone can start there um because i know personally um as someone who identifies as a woman going out on trail uh i backpack a lot by myself and i'll get a lot of comments that have to do with like oh you're brave or just i think they're they're well intended (laughs) but that language um can actually feel very limiting and inhibiting to myself. And it then becomes this thing of like, well, wait, did they know something? I don't know. Like, should I be out here? And it makes me question everything. Right. Um, and- yeah,
3: There's a lot of microaggressions that happen within different spaces. I feel like. So, um, yeah, I always like to say, you know, we just have to evolve from the golden rule to whatever the golden rule 2.0 is, which I always say is, uh, treat others how they wanna be treated. So um, that's just like kind of been our focus is just understanding where people are coming from. And that comes with conversation and creating these spaces and understanding and just growing together um, mutually.
0: I agree. And I think what's happening also is that sometimes people are not, they don't understand, they don't know. Like when I threw hike the Appalachian uh, Trail in 2012, uh, people were approaching me where I was the only black person on the trail that season, and they were approaching me, but they didn't know how to approach me. They didn't know they were, they were excited that I was out there. But the things they were saying, I'm from Brooklyn, and if they would have said it out on the streets of Brooklyn, would have been like, come on. But they weren't being malicious, they were more uh very curious and wanted to learn more and wanted to and one of the biggest questions I get in my talks is how do we diversify the trail? How do we make this happen? So a lot of times they just don't know. And when you don't know the wrong things may come out of your mouth Maybe. you know so that's why we have organizations like yours uh, inclusive outdoors project where um you can share how to um i think that's a huge part of it and it's a it's a reason why we did this podcast where so we can teach others how to actually do these things 100 mm-hmm. percent yeah yeah, yeah.
1: Do you have any stories that you want to share with our listeners like something from a clinic that was really impactful or an experience that you witnessed with one of your participants or just a personal story that you would like to share
2: yeah i can share a story from our ice climbing clinic Um, so we had four participants uh, who were all queer our guide is, is queer and then i was also in the clinic And it was the first time that a lot of the participants had climbed with all queer people, you know, and um, I heard things from like, I never felt welcomed in the ice climbing community because, you know, I I didn't know if I would feel safe going with just like a random group of people. And I think the power that affinity spaces have on folks with more marginalized identities is is incredible you know like to be able to have a group of four people who had never climbed with just queer people and then to create that space for them um i just think it's a really cool experience for everyone to be able to participate in
0: Mm -hmm.
3: yeah and um that was our first clinic and we're hoping to create more but yeah during the the bipoc clinic we branded it ipoc just because we didn't uh, we were able we weren't able to get any uh, black participants at during that time but um yeah we we were just able to you know be ourselves and be free in a space that's predominantly white and pretty homogenous so uh, we were able to you know speak our truths and the way we always speak and play our music and just kind of uh, you know express our cultures uh, whether we were indigenous or Asian or Indian or you know um, other varieties and mixed races, so it was uh, it was definitely a very powerful powerful sense uh that was being created, and people were very excited about that as well
0: mm-hmm. have you Have you guys found any obstacles that kind of like set you back a little bit or something to share with us that may have like hindered what you guys were were we're
3: planning to do? I mean, yeah, it, oddly enough, we tried to start this, we started this in the middle of COVID. So that was exciting.
0: Okay.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so we were trying to be as mindful as possible, especially with such a, you know, a clinic that's based a little bit more nationally. So we, what we thought of was just, you know, inviting folks from neighboring states instead of opening it nationally as just some sort of mitigator for anything that could possibly go wrong. So i um, just trying to be as careful as possible around that. Um, and yeah, I mean, just kind of like, you know, the nervousness that comes with folks that have never tried something like as like, you know, quote unquote, extreme as ice climbing, um, just, you know, being as mindful and um, aware of everyone's situation because everyone is coming from different lived experiences so being able to provide some sort of space that people do feel welcomed is is a lot i feel like you know we put on these clinics and whatnot and it's really not about the ice climbing it's about that community building and making sure everyone's there for each other and supporting each other and how do we do that and it's mostly through you know deeper conversations that we have either on trail or at the crag and um what have you. So that, that was kind of the, the biggest, biggest hurdle, but I think we were able to um, do our best, especially with, an, as a new organization starting during COVID um, you know, we're just trying to learn from our mistakes and make sure, you know, we move forward in a way that is helping our community.
0: It only gets easier from there. Cause <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the first well. always the hardest. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. So, so what's, what's, um, what's the next project what's the next thing you guys that inclusive outdoors is is doing
2: <clears throat> so our next event is going to be with the american alpine club for the Kragen classic in moab utah oh. so we'll be hosting a rock climbing clinic for the three affinity spaces that we primarily work with and then we're gonna have some more ice climbing this winter
0: we'll be right back with today's episode
2: Do you squat when you pee? Then Kula Cloth is for you.
4: Hi, I'm Anastasia Allison, and I'm the founder of Kula Cloth, which is a fancy way of saying that I get to talk to people about peeing within the first five minutes of meeting them. Kula Cloth is an antimicrobial, reusable, zero-waste option for anybody who squats when they pee. I created Kula after being frustrated by seeing discarded toilet paper in the wilderness and after feeling uncomfortable while drip drying on hikes. If you've never used a pea cloth, it's a complete game changer. And I hope that Kula will become a small part of making your best adventures even better.
0: Let's get back to the show. Yep. <laughs>
1: I really want to join in the ice climbing. (laughs) I know, I was gonna say I'm gonna join you (laughs) guys.
0: Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah, we're we're hoping we can create more like sub-affinity spaces too, of just like and also we're we're toying with this idea around accountability spaces for white folks as well, where these spaces are not just white folks playing in the mountains, but more so unpacking their privilege and power and how to incorporate that into their day-to-day lives to try to Try to elevate you know more marginalized communities in these spaces, so you know trying to we're we're toying with that idea a little bit and just uh seeing if that is a possibility um, within within these more you know affinity space based clinics,
2: yeah, I would say the biggest hurdle is covid precautions, you know, so as soon as Uh, We're in a safer place with Mm -hmm. COVID. We can create like larger groups, accountability groups, like have a lot more um, community-based like events for our clinics. But right now we're keeping it pretty small. Um, Just trying to be as cautious as possible with COVID. Mm -hmm.
1: Is the Moab clinic, is that going to be on Wall Street?
2: We don't know yet. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's the first place I've, um, I haven't climbed outdoors a ton, but that is the first place yeah. I've climbed, um, and for those who don't know, Wall Street is just, it's so accessible as far as, like, it you is, is, yeah. it when you park, <laughs> it's right
2: mm-hmm. there. as someone
1: it's who right knew, right had no there. idea what she was doing, um, there's route, many routes available for everyone. <laughs>
3: cool.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it, it, that's definitely the most like accessible wall there. Um, but yeah, that's, that's something we need to figure out here pretty soon.
3: <laughs> Slow and steady. We, yes, all, yes. we both work full-time jobs too, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this, is, this is a very much a passion project we're trying to put our, put our energy into. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitely been received really well and we're just trying to grow it as much as we can. -hmm. Uh, With the capacity that we have, we don't want to like rush into anything too quickly and burn ourselves out, which we've definitely noticed happens in a lot of these spaces. So, um, just trying to make sure we're mindful of each other and just moving forward in a way that, you know, is sustainable. Mm
0: -hmm. That's great. What I've seen so far, you guys are doing some great work. So, keep it up. And hopefully, after this whole COVID thing is over, you guys can just continue growing because I love what you're doing.
3: Yeah, we're we're also excited to, you know, showcase our new partnership with Evolve and just share that a little bit on our platform a little bit more. So, yeah, look out for that.
0: Where can listeners uh, find you guys, uh, Instagram, uh, website, all the things?
2: Yeah, so our Instagram and our website are both inclusiveoutdoorsproject.com or, and then Instagram, it's it's that same handle. Uh, and then from there, you can find clinic registration, uh, more about us, our community guidelines that we have established for our clinics, You know, accountability practices, our scholarship fund, COVID protocols,
0: things like that. Well, Sophia Vasu, thank you so much for join, joining us. Thanks for hosting us.
1: Yeah, this yeah. was a fun chat.
0: So Carly, we're not gearheads, but Let's
1: talk about gear. Let's do it. Okay. So I had a friend reach out to me the other day because I was talking about on Instagram how I pee a lot because I drink a lot of water on trail. So, So we're just jumping right into it. So I use a lot of toilet paper. And my friend was like, well, wait a second. Have you heard of Kula cloth? Kula who? I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Kula cloth. Have you heard of this?
0: Mm-mm, not at all.
1: So I hadn't either, but apparently it's a reusable antimicrobial pea cloth.
0: Okay. I've seen a hiker last year with one of those. I wasn't sure how it worked though.
1: So it's basically, it's not a bandana. Um, but what it can do is you can use it when you go pee to wipe with and you use one side that's textured to wipe with. So that the urine doesn't come through on the other side and then you discreetly put it onto your pack and it snaps
0: well you you said it's not a bandana does it look like a bandana can you get that confused and accidentally wear it on your head (laughs) that would not be good
1: (laughs) wear it around your mouth or your (laughs) neck when when hikers walk by um i don't think you can get it confused with a bandana because the texture is different and they say on their website that the re- the way it's different from a bandana is that it's specifically designed to be a pea cloth, and the Kula cloth is made from advanced silver-infused textiles that are purposely intended to be in contact with the human body.
0: So how does this work? Are D- you-
1: <laughs> Derek's trying to wrap his head around this.
0: Because I'm like, you know, us dudes, we don't, you know, we just go and we're done.
1: I know you have it so much easier. It's a whole process for us women out there. So basically, I have my Kula cloth snapped to my pack. I have to go to the restroom. So I walk 200 feet away from a water source and I step off trail and I take the Kula cloth off and I use it to wipe. And then when I'm done, it just, I think it just dries. I haven't used it. This is just mm-hmm. what friends have told me and what I've read about their product. And then I snap it onto my pack, and and it's discreet because the stains aren't coming through the other side; they're not supposed to. Okay. And. And women can use it while they're menstruating.
0: Okay. So, and will it stay clean? Like, how does that?
1: Yeah, you can wash it.
0: You okay?
1: So that's the cooler cloth. So I think I might try using one of those instead of toilet paper.
0: Yeah. No, it, it sounds great. It's great for the environment. And. It, it sounds good. I'm still not sure how it works, but <laughs> I'm. it sounds great.
1: Okay, so I'll let Derek think about that one. And that is today's
0: gear talk. Let's end the show with a brief word from the Appalachian Mountain Club. Since 1876, the Appalachian Mountain Club has made it its mission to protect the mountains, forests, waters, and trails of the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. All That History Needs an Expert, which is where archivist Becky Fullerton comes in. Since 2005, she's curated Appalachian Mountain Club's vast collection of documents, books, letters, photos, and more. And she always has an exciting story to tell. Here to talk about some of the highlights of the Appalachian Mountain Club's archive collection is Becky Fullerton. Welcome, Becky.
2: Hi,
4: good to be here. Well, I am the kind of day-to-day manager of the Appalachian Mountain Club's library and archives. That's our official name. So the archives are a repository of all of the historical materials that the club has produced and collected since the club was founded in 1876. So that means, um, all kinds of paper records, photographs, maps, architectural plans, memorabilia. If it's old and it has something to do with AMC, we probably have it. And it's, we're a library and an archives. So that means we have a book and serial collection. It's a research collection that you can come and visit and look through books and serials and use those resources. But the archives part of it means that those are all unique, one- of a kind materials. So for the most part, they're unpublished. And a lot of people would say it's a a manuscript collection. So it's material that's been produced by a person or a department of the club, and it's the sole record of the things that were happening at any given time throughout our history. So there's usually one copy. So that's what kind of differentiates. Libraries from archives, you have the, the published material, a book that you could find a million copies anywhere, and then you have archives which tend to be more unique material where there's maybe only one or two copies of any given thing. So a typical day, I don't even know if there is a typical day for me, I guess a lot of people would say that, a lot of archivists would say that, so I'm, I'm what's considered in the field a lone arranger. <laughs> Uh, I'm an archivist who, uh, I'm the sole person in my department, I'm the only person here managing the archives, Um, a lot of institutions have more than one person doing that job, so you'll have a a place that has maybe a reference archivist that's just handling all the requests that are coming in from researchers and maybe you have a processing archivist who is actually handling the collections and organizing them. But I get to do all of that stuff myself. So uh, we're called Lone arrangers, and we uh, we do it all. So on any given day, I will walk into my office and find you know a dozen or more emails in my inbox, requests coming in from inside and outside of AMC folks that are looking for historical resources because they're writing a book or they're looking into some of their family history or genealogy and want to know about an ancestor that might have been a member of AMC. Um, But it could be somebody looking for an old map that has an abandoned trail on it that they want to go out and kind of see if they can find the root of that trail. Um, I've had folks that are writing you know, their graduate thesis on environmental conservation history who want to look at our conservation research department's records. So it could be really any question on any given day. I never know what I'm going to walk into. It gives me a chance to be a complete history detective nerd all the time, which I love. I get just as excited about finding new historical information for someone as the person that is looking for it does generally. <laughs> so we collect old hut log books. So the AMC has eight backcountry huts here in the White Mountains. And at every hut, when you walk in at the front desk, there is a log book that you can sign. You can just sign your name and say, I was here on this date. A lot of people choose to write a little note about how their hike was that day. Some folks get really into it, write the, you know, the great American novel of their trip up the mountain and what they encountered on the way, uh, which is pretty cool too. But those, when they've been in the huts for a couple of decades, if they're starting to look really worse for wear and kind of picked apart and falling apart, which they do over time since they get handled quite a bit and they, they sit there for decades sometimes, they eventually do come down here to the archives and they get filed in a, in a little spreadsheet. So we know which log, hot log books we have and what years they cover. Uh, and then they go in a nice acid free box and sit here in the nice climate controlled archives. And people can come in or email and ask about a hot log from, say, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. Or 100 or more years ago. But we have the logbooks pretty continuously. There are a few gaps here and there. Sometimes they'll disappear. Um, We had one incident in 1940 where Madison Spring Hut actually burned down. So some of the hut logbooks there were lost completely. But we have those hut logbooks dating all the way back to 1888 when Madison Spring Hut was built. The first logbook is it's really just a little paper notebook that was rolled up as a little scroll and stuffed inside a, a metal canister. So there's not much to it, but it has the very first guests who, after the hut was built, stayed there in February of 1889. <laughs> and they wrote about chopping ice away from the door of the hut to stay there for the first night as the very first guest. There, there was no caretaker, there was no hut crew, it was February so it was a little uh, chilly and snowy and icy but they talk about you know going in and lighting the not very great wood stove and trying to stay warm through the night and climbing Mount Adams next day and it's just a really kind of incredible peek into the the roots of the hut system and and what that experience would be like but the the log books are they're an awesome way to kind of experience firsthand personal histories. People would write, um, in addition to notes and descriptions of, of their experience, a lot of people would add in little drawings and cartoons. You can sort of see some historical events marked in there, the the moon landing, um, 9-11. You can see where some of the very first through hikers came through we have grandma gatewood's signature and a couple of those log books so there's there's a lot of really interesting detail to be mined from those the unlikely
0: stories podcast is produced by the Appalachian Mountain Club production design editing and show segments are produced by Kelly Welch and me Derek Lugo with sound design by Adam Watkins the Unlikely Stories podcast episodes are written by Derek Lugo, with writing assistance from Carly Murray. For more Unlikely Stories, follow us on Instagram at unlikely stories Podcast. And hey, if you're digging what you hear, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This helps us bring the pod to more people.